All right, it's good to be back. I am back from my road trip, my motorcycle trip, and good news, I survived. Um, well, barely. I did get stuck in a pretty nasty uh, hailstorm at one point that blew my bike over, and it was a whole thing. But I survived. I'm here. Um, and I'm back, and we're going to keep going um, in the book of Luke today. So um, we're going to be in Luke. I'm on the wrong page here. Luke chapter 4. And uh, let me just open this up in prayer. Um, and then we'll continue, you know, we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, this this truth that we're going to read today about your your time here on earth and your temptation, and we thank you that you are um, uh, really one of us, and that you have uh, um, faced the same temptations that we face, but you defeated them um, when we fail. And I just pray, Lord, that that truth would really sink into our hearts today, and that that would... Um, really impact the way that we love and worship and serve you. So we just pray these things in your name. Amen. So we've been reading uh, the book of Luke together. And uh, the reason we're reading the book of Luke, if you remember, I've said this a few different times, but basically the reason we're reading the book of Luke is because we want to get a picture of who Jesus is, right? As we um, plant this church together, one of the things we want to do is make sure that we're we're worshiping and that we really know the Jesus as he's revealed himself um, in the gospel stories. And so we picked the book of Luke, the investigative reporter, and we've been walking through this book just verse by verse talking about who Jesus is and what he's done and and how these texts fit into the wider story of scripture. And so we read about the infancy narrative and then we read about John the Baptist. and But then uh, last time we read about the baptism of Jesus um, where he went to the uh, to John the Baptist, and he was baptized in the Jordan River. And we read about um, his genealogy, how it goes back to Adam. And we talked about Jesus uh, as the new Adam, right? The new uh, flesh and blood, human, actual human being, right? He really was one of us. Um, and that will continue, that theme will continue to play out in our text today. I actually, originally, when I outlined these sections... Um, I had last week's sermon and this week's sermon in one uh, message about how Jesus is the, the second Adam, right? The new and better human representative. Um, but then I decided, actually, that was a good spot to break last week, and we're going to take this one a little bit separate. Um, so we're going to do uh, the temptation story of Jesus today. So we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, uh, led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus now is again portrayed as full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've talked about this and as we've been talking about um, the humanity of Jesus and that he lived his life here on earth during these 30-whatever years, however long he was here. He lived his time here on earth as the Spirit-filled Messiah. And so he set the privileges of his divinity aside and he lived completely empowered and completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of these amazing things that we see Jesus do, he's doing them, right, as the one who is perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so here, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. The Gospel of Mark says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, right? The point is that Jesus was so in tune with the Spirit uh, that he followed the Spirit's every lead. He was so obedient 
to the Holy Spirit's leading that the Holy Spirit may as well have pushed Jesus into the desert. So Jesus goes into the desert led by the Holy Spirit. But why? What was the point? For what? Uh, Look at verse 2. It says, uh, for 40 days being tempted, uh, being tempted by the devil. So just let me take a quick sidebar here. Uh, we, you know, you, you may be thinking, you really expect me to believe in the devil, right? The, the red suit, the horns, the pitchfork, the tail, the goatee, right? All that stuff. Don't we live in San Francisco? Aren't we more sophisticated than to believe in all of those fairy tales and all that kind of crap? Uh, do you actually expect me, right, the intellectual, to believe in the devil? Well, yes. Um, not the pitchfork guy, but the actual, uh, the enemy that the Bible talks about, the Satan, is who the Bible talks about. Um, I'll tell you, I was reading about this. Um, I read this story or this kind of antidote here. Um, FDR, right? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, like most moderns, uh, when he was president, he really believed that when people or nations uh, were evil, it was because uh, he had that very modern view, right? Because they were desperate or uh, because they were longing for better living conditions or because they had been mistreated and were out for revenge. And so to deal with evil in that sort of an enlightened uh, way, you need an enlightened social system that, and then evil will just be done away with. And uh, he talked about later in his life, that's what he believed. And so in a just and good society, evil will just melt away. And because of this, FDR and a lot of the other um, leaders in America uh, during World War II did not believe the reports that were coming out of Nazi Germany um, about uh, the Holocaust and about all the things that were happening to Jewish folks in Nazi Germany. Um, they didn't take any steps to do anything about it. And one author writing about this says this. I'll read this to you. He says, um, near the very end of FDR's life and near the end of World War II, of course, there's a true story about when FDR would go up to see his weekend house, uh, go up to his weekend house in upper New York State. He went to a church on the weekends and he spoke to one of the young ministers there about the fact that he was reading Christian theology. He was reading Kierkegaard, uh, at least, and some other Christian philosophers and theologians about original sin and about the devil. And he said to the minister he was finally coming to understand because he said he didn't understand how the most educated country in the world, uh, practically a culture what does it say? Sorry, practically a culture that gave us the research university that invented modern scholarship uh, to a great degree, so cultured and so educated. How could they do, he's talking about Germany, how could they do such evil? It seemed so impossible. But then he actually said, by reading about original sin and about spiritual and supernatural evil, he was uh, finally beginning to understand what happened in Nazi Germany, right? The biblical view of the world and of original sin takes a much more realistic and a nuanced view of the causes uh, and the effects of sin in our world. And so today what we're going to see is Jesus, he's going to go head to head with the enemy, with the very source of evil. And uh, let me just take another quick uh, second sidebar here and just explain one other thing before we actually jump into these three temptations. Um, if you notice, if you read the temptations in Luke and then you go read them in book of Matthew, um, they're in a different order. Matthew's order is probably chronological. Luke, a lot of what we read in the book of Luke is ordered more thematically, not as quite as bad as the book of John, or bad, I guess, different as the book of John, um, where John is very ordered theologically. Um, Luke does that to a certain extent because a lot of writers in the ancient world, that's the way that they wrote. And so he's just doing what, you know, was perfectly acceptable. So when we read it, we 
we go through and we think, oh, is this chronological? It seems chronological, but in Luke's story, it's not always. He, he groups certain things together. And so um, Luke here has changed the order probably of the three temptations, but it's not that big of a deal. So let's, let's take a look at them. Um, look at the rest of verse 2. So it says, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, oh wait, actually, so he ate nothing during those days. That's where I'm going to stop. So for 40 days, he would have drank water, maybe milk, something like that. Um, As I was researching this, and as I've heard sermons on this topic, uh, this passage over the years, um, man, I've heard so much stuff where people spend so much time getting into the details about if a 40-day fast is possible. Um, But that's not really the point. Remember, this isn't a modern biography. God wholly inspired these scriptures. But like I said, uh, when we're talking about Luke's order, he did so by inspiring them in the method of writing that was popular in the day. And so he used real authors who wrote to a real time in a real place and in a real style. And these authors didn't write in the same style, the exacting style that we write in today. And so the Bible is actually full of round numbers. And so there's a very good possibility that 40 just means really like a long time. It could have been 45, could have been 25, could have been 40, right? Uh, But it was a round number. And I think Luke uses the round number 40 because it's significant biblically. Uh, biblically, not because it was the exact number of days, although it may have been the Bible, you know, but the option is there that this was just around 40 days, just like how Jesus was around 30 years old, that sort of thing. Um, And so this number, though, the number 40 is significant biblically, right? Um, The people of Israel, which this text is strongly linked to, the people of Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years. And so whenever somebody mentions 40 in the Bible, anybody reading this in the ancient world would have immediately jumped to the story of the Exodus that's told in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? Um, that period was a time after leaving Egypt. It was a time of testing. It was a time of temptations. And if you go and read Exodus and Numbers, uh, you see that the people of Israel went through this test in the desert, except they failed miserably. They were constantly turning away from God. They were constantly rebelling against God and his leadership. They were constantly rebelling against God and his provision, and they whined and whined, and then they all died in the desert. And that took 40 years. So Luke now says Jesus is also going to be in the desert, but instead of 40 years, he's there for 40 days, and uh, he in that desert is going to succeed in obedience and in uh, service to the Father where these guys in the Exodus story failed. So Luke is portraying Jesus now as sort of the new and better Israel who's going to succeed where they failed. So he keeps going. Um, And let's see. Uh, And when they were ended, he was hungry. I love that. When they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Right, so 40-ish days, he's out in the desert not eating, and he was hungry. That's the understatement of the century. Remember, Jesus was a real, actual human being with real, actual human needs, and after 40 days, he would have been starving. And it was at this point, right, where the devil came to tempt him when his body was the weakest. And what the devil says, he shows up and he says, look, if you are the Son of God, So what he's trying to get Jesus to do is doubt what the Father has literally just said about him in the baptism. If you flip back and look at uh, chapter 3, verse 22, this is at the baptism. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, and this is the key, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
So you remember, we didn't, we talked about this. He didn't say, hey, everybody, look, this is my son. The father here was specifically talking to Jesus, whose faith was growing and whose dependence on the father was uh, being more and more perfected. And in that, um, in that growth that Jesus experienced, this was one of those huge moments. The father spoke from heaven and told Jesus, like confirming what Jesus already knew, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And so as we're reading through the temptation narrative, right, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, it's so easy to pass over that sentence, but that is so huge. This is one of the ways that the devil loves to get at the people of God, right? By questioning what God says, especially questioning their identity. He did this with Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? Right? He comes to Eve, and Adam, I, I always try to mention this. The Bible says Adam was standing right there too. So really he came to both of them and said, well, did God really say? The first thing the devil does is try to get God's people uh, to question the words of God. In our world, Satan has a very easy go of it by questioning uh, what God has said in his word on all sorts of things, like um, right, sexual ethics. God says that the, our, our world's sexual ethic, God says that the most important thing about you is that you were made in his image. But Satan says, no, the actual most important thing about you is your sexual desires. You, you need to define yourself by your sexual desires. Right? We live in a city that has wholeheartedly fallen into this way of thinking. Or the devil gets into the church and he tells church people, he says things like, God will only love you if, right, fill in the blank. If, if you've sinned, are you really a child of God? Did God really say that? This is the avenue that Satan takes with people throughout history, and he takes here with Jesus, right? Well, if you really are the son of God, did God really say that you're the son of God? Are you sure? If you are, prove it by commanding these stones to become bread. The temptation is this. God has said, Jesus, that you are his son, meaning that he will take care of you, just like any father takes care of his son. But the devil is saying, that's not true. You need to take care of yourself. You need to tap into your divine power to take care of yourself. Disbelieve what God has said. And so what the devil is doing here is he's appealing to a legitimate desire, hunger. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. And, but he's asking Jesus to fulfill that legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. And so could Jesus have done this? Could he have said to the stone, become bread? It would have become bread and he could have eaten it and been filled. Well, of course he could. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He did the whole feeding of the 5,000 thing, feeding of the 4,000 later on. But here, this in this instance, that's not what God wants him to do. And so to do so would be to go against the will of God and would be sinful. And so look what Jesus says in verse 4. This is Jesus' answer. He says, uh, and Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus immediately jumps to, it is written. The temptation that Satan was trying to get Jesus to fall into was to not believe the word of God. And so how does Jesus respond? By quoting the very words of God. Jesus says, it is written. Basically, he's saying to Satan, you've said one thing, God's word says another, right? God says another thing in his word. Jesus here is showing us his view of scripture. When he reads the book of Deuteronomy, that's what this quote is from. It's from Deuteronomy 8. When Jesus reads the book of Deuteronomy, 
He is equating that with the very words of God so that he can look at it and say, no, 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 Satan, this is what God really said. And so, like I said, this quote is from Deuteronomy 8. Luke includes only the first part of uh, Jesus's quote from uh, Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, Luke kind of abbreviates what Jesus says. Matthew also includes the second part where Jesus says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what does he mean? Well, Jesus is basically saying, you're asking me to forget that God will take care of me, and I won't do that. I'm going to trust that God's word is enough to take care of me. And so Jesus does not fall into sin in the first temptation, but Satan is not done yet. Right, let's keep going. He says, uh, the second temptation now happens in verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, uh, it will all be yours. This is so, so now the devil takes Jesus up, it says, to a high mountain where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. There's debate here as to what was really going on here. This was probably some kind of a vision, right? That's the interpretation uh, that most uh, Bible commentators and theologians, including John Calvin, take, right? I tend to agree that this was some kind of a vision because in the area, there's no mountain where you could see all the kingdoms of the world. So something was going on here, some sort of a vision. So what was this temptation? Well, to worship, the temptation was to worship Satan instead of God in exchange for all of the kingdoms of the world. So imagine for a minute, Jesus growing up, like we talked about, Uh, Do you remember when he went to the temple and he was sitting with the teachers and he was learning the Bible? And this, he actually sat down in synagogues and went over the scrolls and there were parts he didn't know and then he learned them and then he did know. And so as a boy, Jesus is learning and he's reading some of these prophetic books, including Isaiah and others. And in those books, God promises the people of Israel that a king will come and will eventually, you know, will come to earth and will eventually rule the entire globe, right? The, the, the kingdom of God will expand to cover all the nations. Um, in theology, we kind of debate when this is going to happen and how this is going to happen. Is there a millennium kingdom or not? That's not really important right now. But Jesus is learning about this kingdom that the Messiah will rule over. And as he's learning this, he learns that he is that king. He is the promised one. And so here he is, jump forward a bunch of years. He knows about this kingdom. He knows he's supposed to inherit this kingdom. And now Satan is here enticing him to take a shortcut. He's offered those kingdoms right now, not later. Um, It's like, uh, you guys know, okay, so one of my favorite things is infomercials. I love watching infomercials, and I love bad commercials. And one of my favorite bad commercials is, you guys know this one, right? Call J.A.G. Wentworth, 877-CASH-NOW. You guys know that one? That's terrible singing. I'm going to auto-tune that for the the recording. No, I'm just kidding. But basically, you guys know these guys, right? They have the opera singers. What they do, the idea is this. If you have some sort of a settlement from an injury or a lottery or something like that, or an inheritance that's coming in from a trust, um, and you get monthly payments from that, but let's say you want all of it right now. You call J.G. Wentworth at 877-CASH-NOW, and they give you a smaller lump sum. You take that money, and then they they take um, the, the payments over time. So that's basically what the devil is offering Jesus, a poor deal. Have a something that's not as good now instead of uh, something else later, right? That's what he's offering. But Jesus knows the price is too high. And so he says here in verse 8, he says, uh, And Jesus answered him, again, it is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So now he jumps back two chapters, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here's the story. In the wilderness, um, right? like I said, they received the law. And that law was meant to, to keep God at the center of the lives of the people of Israel. And in the wilderness, the people of God continually failed miserably. Over and over and over again, they failed to keep the law of God. And so here in the wilderness, the new Adam, the new representative of the people of God is succeeding where they failed. They worshiped the golden calf. They turned to other gods. Jesus now says, no, 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 Satan, you're asking me to do what the people of Israel did and to turn to other gods. Uh, But Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to completely rely on on the provision of the Father. I'm going to rely on uh, him to be the center of my life. Um, And then verse 9 now, so Satan loses the first round, he loses the second round, so he's going to go three rounds now. So look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Matthew actually places this uh, temptation second. This is probably actually the second one that happened. Um, in By the way, let me just do another little quick sidebar uh, as we're talking about the order before we get into these verses. Um, how did Luke know what to write down? How did he know about this? Well, the answer is Jesus probably told his disciples about this at some point. He sat them down and... Uh, he said, hey guys, let me teach you about temptation. Let me tell you about what temptation and the time I went three rounds with the devil uh, in the wilderness while I was weak. You know, So uh, we, we're learning this because Jesus taught this to his disciples. Matthew wrote them in chronological order. Luke kind of changes the order a little bit. All right, so this third temptation that Luke writes, which is actually the second temptation, um, he takes him up to Jerusalem. And uh, the reason, this is the reason that Luke puts these out of order. Jerusalem is the end goal of Jesus's ministry. Luke organizes his entire book here about Jesus moving towards Jerusalem uh, to the final week where he will face the cross. And so in his order of sort of a theological telling, now the final temptation has to do with Jerusalem, which is also where the book will sort of climax. And so he takes him to the temple complex. So the temple complex was this humongous building complex. It was more than a building. It was like a whole, uh, like a city block, you know, and um, there were all these different areas of uh, courtyards and different sort of sections of the temple with the actual temple building in the middle of this giant complex of courtyards. And there was a ton of stuff happening. And if you can imagine, anybody in the ancient world would have been absolutely blown away by the temple complex. And so there's actually, as you read in the Bible, there's actually four temples kind of. There's the tabernacle first, which was the tent that the people used. Then there was the temple that Solomon built. Um, David asked to build, but Solomon was allowed to build. That temple was uh, destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Then the the, um, the exiles come back and they build this puny little temple um, on the same site, but where the people who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, they see the second temple and they just they they weep because it's so pathetic in comparison to the first one. And then the fourth temple is what we call Herod's temple, which a, a lot of years later, hundreds of years later, Herod the Great comes along. 
And he takes that temple complex from the exiles and he remodels it and he builds it into this giant, magnificent temple complex. And so, um, oh, during this whole time, I guess I'm going to show the picture there on the wall uh, of the temple complex. Now, so Satan now takes Jesus to the temple complex. And uh, what he does now is he quotes scripture to Jesus. Um, Boy, that is not very bright, but think, okay, so this is what Satan does. He quotes from Psalm 91, and I think here, here's what he was doing. Since Satan, I'm sorry, since Jesus, don't get those two confused. Since Jesus is quoting scripture, Satan probably thinks, well, maybe I can try to beat him at his own game. Um, one church father, though, said it like this. Whenever you hear quotations from the scriptures, be very careful of trusting the speaker immediately. Consider the person, what sort of life he leads, what sort of opinion he holds, what sort of intention he has. Otherwise, he might pretend that he is holy and he might not be. Basically, just because somebody knows the Bible and can quote scripture at you uh, doesn't mean that they're doing so in a responsible manner. Doesn't mean that they're actually right. And so you're also supposed to take into account the life of somebody who's quoting scripture at you. Do they actually live the scriptures? Do they follow? Do they love Jesus? Satan knows the Bible better than I do, right? I have a seminary degree. I've been studying the Bible for a lot of years. I've been teaching it for a lot of years. And I do not know the ins and outs of the Bible better than Satan. But he's misusing the Bible when he does so. And so he tries that here. He quotes this thing to Jesus and he takes him up. This is what he does. He takes him up to the temple complex and he he takes him to the highest point in the temple complex where there's this big cliff kind of thing. And he asks him to jump off down into the courtyard. Now, why? The question is, what's going on here? Well, according to some Jewish writings, um, it seemed that there was this tradition that kind of quoting this verse that where the Messiah showed up, uh, he would show up and <clears throat> he would show himself to the people at the temple. So everybody at the temple was expecting the Messiah to just walk in and say, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. That's one option. The other option is um, another possible tradition. Um, this one's less sure, but another t- possible tradition says that um, when the Messiah would fall off the temple mount, um, that if he were to fall off the temple mount, the Lord would not, the Father would not let him die. He would send angels to sweep down um, and pick him up. It's just like when Kirk was climbing in Yosemite and Captain Kirk, you know, from Star Trek, that's right, and he falls off the cliff thing, you know, what was it, El Capitan, or I don't know what's the the hills to, you know, the, the rock faces to climb in Yosemite, and he falls, and then Spock has his little uh, rocket boots on, and he, he goes down, and he pick, you know, he grabs him right before he hits the ground. Basically, that was the tradition, is that if, if the Messiah were to trip and fall off the side of the temple, uh, the angels would not let him Uh, hit the ground because he was the Messiah and he had work to do. And so whenever somebody would show up and call themselves the Messiah, they'd take him up on the Temple Mount and they'd chuck him off and then splat, he'd hit the floor. Well, guess that one wasn't the Messiah. Now, that may or may not be true that that's what's going on here. Either way, the temptation is the same, right? The temptation is Satan is asking Jesus, be the Messiah on your own terms, not on the terms of the Father. The Father's plan for the Messiah was a brutal death and suffering. It was to face the cross and the rejection of everybody around him and to be separated um, from the Trinity and to, for the whole wrath of God to be poured out on Jesus. And Satan now is trying to give Jesus sort of a false but an easy way out. Be the Messiah, do it. Right, but without all the suffering. So how does Jesus handle this one? Verse 12, and Jesus answered, uh, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So 
Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy for the third time, and he answers Satan's misuse of the scripture with the proper use of it. Now, let me give you the context here. In Exodus 17, the people complain and they accuse God because there's no water in the desert. And they say things like, why are we even out here? Did you just bring us out here to die? And so God tells Moses, take your staff, you know, the from the Red Sea and all that stuff. Take that staff, walk over there and hit that rock. And then a bunch of water is just going to come flowing out of the rock. And so once that happened, the people got their water and they were, hey, speaking of water, my throat. So once that happened, the people got their water and they named the place Massa and Meribah, which in Hebrew means testing and quarreling. Okay, so... That's the background of the story. So Jesus' quote now is from Deuteronomy 6. It's from years later where Moses is preaching his sermon in Deuteronomy. It's kind of his ending sermon right before he dies. And he's saying, look, you guys remember what happened there. And he's telling the next generation, don't do what those guys did. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Um, He will take care of you. His plan for your life and for your nation is better than your own plan. So trust him. Don't test him. Don't, you know, uh, older translations say tempt him, but don't test him. Now, this is the verse that Jesus quotes Satan. You're telling me, Jesus says, not to trust in in the Father's plan for me, right? The spirit-filled but suffering Messiah. But God's word says that I should trust him. So who should I go with, the enemy or the word of God? Should I trust God? And Jesus says, basically, it's no contest. Of course I'm going to trust God. Um, And then verse 13. uh, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until uh, an opportune time. So every temptation. um, David Garland, one commentator, he says this. The phrase every test or every temptation suggests that Jesus faced the whole uh, gamut of temptation and not just these three. It also does not mean that the devil is finished here now. His withdrawal is simply the conclusion to the testing narrative and a temporary concession of defeat. So Satan is not done um, trying to get Jesus to fall into sin, but he's left him alone for now and he has conceded defeat and he stopped his onslaught. Now, that's our text. Let's ask Let's end this by asking, uh, don't get too excited when I said let's end this, right? You guys know how it works, how when preachers are like, oh, let me just wrap it up here. That means we've got about an hour and a half left. Now, um, let's end this by asking the big question that will really help us understand this passage, right? The, the elephant in the room. Could Jesus have sinned? This is the million-dollar question as we read this passage. What if he had turned the stone into bread? Could he have? Is that even possible? Right? Here's the problem. If Jesus as God couldn't sin because he was God, then he wasn't really tempted, was he? But if he could sin, then he's not really God, right? Now, there's some very complicated theological answers that we don't have time to get into now. Um, Theologians have been wrestling with with this for a while, right? Like, I'll just give you a a quick lay of the land. One theologian said, for example, that, okay, Jesus, we talked about the two natures of Jesus, human and divine. If he only... Um, and uh, if he only had a, div- uh, a human nature, he could have sinned. But his divine nature propped up his human nature. And so um, his human nature really was tempted, even though the divine nature sort of prevented that sin. Another theologian put it like this. Jesus couldn't sin, uh, but he didn't know that he couldn't have sinned. And so this thing is like really messed up. Um, he didn't know 
that he couldn't sin. So he was genuinely tempted, but he had no idea um, that it wasn't possible for him to sin. There's a bunch of other complicated answers. Here's the answer I want to give you. It's from that same book we talked about earlier, Bruce Ware's book, The Man Christ Jesus. Now, um, think this is what Ware says, right? Think back to what we talked about before. Jesus is the spirit-filled Messiah. Remember, he is fully divine and fully human, but he lived his life here on earth Uh, empowered by the Spirit. He set aside the divine privileges and he lived his life as a real human who was uh, pushed along by the Holy Spirit. And so when he resisted temptation, he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the same way that we resist temptation. And so if he had grabbed onto his divine nature at any moment, he could have been kept from sin, but he had set those privileges aside. And so Ware says that we need to see the difference. This is an exact quote. He says, we need to see the difference between why something could not occur and why it didn't actually occur. And he gives two illustrations, and I'll kind of modify these a little bit. But basically, he talks about a swimmer, long-distance swimmer. Now, I only know one long-distance swimmer. It's Melissa's cousin, Ashley. And she um, is insane. She's a fire... Uh, you know, she works at a firehouse or whatever. I don't know what she does. Is she an EMT? Something. Anyway, but she's also a swimmer. She does water polo, which is basically just a whole bunch of people trying to drown each other while they throw a ball around. Let me tell you, 10 minutes of water polo, I would be dead. Uh, But she does that. She also does these Alcatraz swims. And she, uh, you know, which is absolutely insane if you ask me, but she, she trains. And I'm sure at some point she slowly expanded her range, right? When when Ashley was a little kid swimming around the pool, she probably could not have swimmed from Alcatraz. Uh, but, you know, now she can because she slowly expanded her, her range. She works out. Um, she, she's got herself ready for the swim. Now, on the day of the big swim, she has a boat that follows her. I don't actually know if she does. I think they do this. But, you know, imagine she has a boat that follows her. And as she swims, she's swimming and swimming and swimming. No help is needed. Now, she and she makes it all the way to Pier 39. Now, here's the question. Why is it that Ashley could not have drowned while she was swimming from Alcatraz? Why was it impossible for her to drown? Because there was a boat right there. But why is it that she didn't drown? It's because she trained and she swam and she really did it, right? And so if you went up to Ashley, um, well, and you said, oh, of course you swam from Alcatraz. There was a boat there to help you. She'd be like, what? No, I trained. I actually did it. Uh, It'd be insulting for you to say that to her. The second example that Ware gives is imagine a high schooler taking a math test, right? And the, the test is coming up, and the student, is he's allowed to use his calculator. But he takes the test, he doesn't use the calculator, and he gets an A. Now, if you said to him, well, of course you did well. You, your teacher let you guys use the calculators. He'd say, yeah, but I didn't, right? I passed the test anyway. So the point is, although Jesus was God and couldn't sin, he didn't use that divinity to not sin. He, he did it. In his human nature, empowered by the Spirit, and in his human nature, he really was tempted. And he defeated that temptation in the power uh, and the guiding and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And where uh, Bruce Ware puts it like this. He says, and in fact, the answer Scripture suggests to us is this. Jesus did not sin, not because he relied on supernatural power of his divine nature or because his divine nature overpowered his human nature, keeping him from sinning, but because he utilized all of the resources given to him in his humanity. And so Jesus 
defeated these temptations as if he really was one of us because he really was one of us. But here's another thing. It's even worse than any temptations that we have experienced, right? Uh, Let's talk about the extent of Jesus's temptations. So Jesus really was tempted. All right, we get that. But maybe because he didn't have a sin nature, maybe the temptations weren't as bad, right? Well, wrong. Uh, Let me say two things about this. First, you can... Uh, you can bet that nobody on earth in the history of humanity has ever been assaulted like Jesus was by the devil. A lot of people, um, a lot of people on blogs and in the Christian sort of, you know, Christian culture, I guess, whatever we call it, um, they seem to love to gossip about pastors who fail and pastors who fall into sin. Um, and, but when a pastor falls into some sort of a grievous, especially public sin, there's hurt that gets spread all around. And uh, the devil loves to take down pastors because we're public figures. And I wish uh, that they talked about this more during pastor training and all that stuff uh, and whatnot. But uh, being in church leadership puts a target on your back for the devil. Because if he can take you down, he can spread the hurt around. It doesn't just affect you. It actually, like, there's examples of pastors who were pastors of huge churches that caused just like tidal waves of pain around them when they fell into very public sin. And most people read that stuff and they go, ah, oh, that guy was a hypocrite. Of course he's a sinner. But when I read that sort of stuff, I'm brokenhearted because I know, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Like the devil was really after that guy because he knew in taking him down, he could be uh, do a lot of damage to the kingdom of God. Now, if that's true for just your run-of-the-mill run of Joe Schmo schmuck pastor, right? Imagine how much more that was true for God's holy Messiah, right? For the promised king that was to come. And so for Jesus, his entire life, he was the number one target of the enemy. So that's the first thing. But here's the second thing. Not sinning made it worse. Uh, Ware talks about this in his book. In the battle with sin, it's so easy to just give in and sin. When you do, there's this sort of release of the temptation. And the more that you fight, the more the, te- the, the temptation builds. And so you can imagine that Jesus, he fought that off for his entire life. So not only did Jesus face real temptation, he faced temptation like nothing that nobody else ever has because he never gave in to that sin. And so that temptation just kept building and building and building. And in all of this, Jesus lived the absolute perfect life. And that's what the author, this is, um, this is where we'll go next. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Um, in Hebrews, let me flip over, Hebrews 4, um, verse 15. Hebrews, I still sing the song I learned in Sunday school. Hebrews, James. All right. Um, Hebrews 4, look at verse 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near uh, with confidence, sorry, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And so what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus really understands our temptations, right? Last time we talked about Jesus as the second Adam. He was, 
he was perfect where Adam and Eve where Adam and Eve failed, right? And so let's compare the two narratives. That's one of the more important ways to read this story from Luke chapter 4 of the temptation narrative is to compare it to the very first temptation narrative, right? Adam and Eve, they had every chance to succeed. Um, and they were in a lush garden with as much food and as much provision as they needed. Jesus, on the other hand, he was starving in a harsh and desolate wilderness. So they had every chance and they were taken care of. And Jesus was the flip side of that. Adam and Eve had each other. Like I said, they were both standing there at the tree. Jesus was all alone. Adam and Eve believed the word of Satan. Did God really say this? And they believed what the devil had to say. Jesus believed and only trusted in the word of God. Adam and Eve, they moved God away from the center to move themselves to the center. Jesus always trusted the Father and kept him as Lord. Um, uh, Wynn Collier says this. I want to read this to you. To read the second tale apart from the first. So to read the story, uh, the story of Jesus without thinking about the first, uh, you know, uh, Genesis 3. To read the second uh, tale apart from the first does injustice to the whole scripture as a narrative, uh, but it does, uh, but it also does injustice to Jesus's decisive action against evil. Jesus's temptation in the wilderness does not primarily sketch a moralistic story providing helpful hints on how we too, with a bit of Jesus inspiration, can conquer uh, conquer the tempter. Rather, Jesus's hostile standoff with evil was a reprisal for all humanity, for all humanity had lost in Eden and could never on our own regain. When Jesus emerged from the wilderness as the victor, his his triumph signaled an end already set in motion, evil doomed to obliteration, and humanity destined for joy. So do you see there what that commentator says? This story is not about, well, how do I not sin when I face temptation? I'll just quote the Bible, right? The way that this text fits into the whole Bible, into the whole story of the gospel is the key. Jesus really became one of us. He was really tempted as we are, and he really defeated uh, the devil, and he defeated evil. Then and only then can we, his people, be freed from the power that sin has over us. Can we be freed as slaves of sin and be moved to slaves of God? Only then, as God's holy people, can we start to resist the devil like Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we read this text, it should not bum us out because we're not perfect like Jesus was, because that's kind of the whole point. It should excite us because he was perfect for us. It should cause us to worship our king and be thankful that our king succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so I'll end by just reading this verse again from Hebrews. It's verse 16. Um, this should be our response to this truth. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, um, sorry, <laughs> to find grace to help in time of need. Jesus's success in the wilderness, what it should do is drive us to worship, to come near to God, to the throne of God and to receive his grace with confidence because we know that Jesus has defeated the enemy. Grace to save us and he's given us grace to keep us from the power of sin. What a wonderful and amazing Savior that we love and that we serve. 
And so now I'll pray and then we'll sing another song and um, worship him together. So Lord, we're thankful that the gospel story is not, here's a bunch of stuff that we need to do to be saved. We're thankful that the, the our salvation is not up to us and is not based on our behavior and our defeating the forces of evil. We thank you that the gospel story is that you have done all of that stuff for us. And so we ask, Lord, for the same power, that it, the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled, enabled you uh, to defeat the devil in the wilderness. We ask for that spirit, your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be in our lives personally and among us as a church and as your people. And so we want to be a people who are just absolutely blown away by how amazing you are and how wonderful your grace is. So just help us to do that now. We praise you and we love you. We thank you. Amen.